Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast, a special midterm edition. I'm your host today, Andrea Christensen, a partner of Penta. Joining me to discuss Tuesday's election results are Penta senior partner and former senior advisor to National Republicans, Kevin Madden, and managing director and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa. Kevin and Michael, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. I haven't, I haven't, I have, truthfully, I have not slept yet. Well, then let's get started. Um, He's going to be real clear eyed in his assessment. All good. So we still don't know exactly where the chips are going to fall. There was not a red wave, but Republicans are still expected to take the House and the Senate could again rest on a Georgia runoff. Uh, For me, I I see the split ticket voting and the underperformance of a lot of Trump endorsed candidates as an indicator of two things, that the quality of the candidate still matters and that voters are smarter than a lot of people give them uh, credit for. And so um, to get us started, um, what are some of the, the, the top takeaways that you have from last night's vote about how, how is the average American thinking about choosing their elected officials? So, Kevin, let's start with you. Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. If you're going to wake up and assess, well, what just happened, um, a very divided American electorate delivered a very divided political judgment. Um, they are, if you look at any of the polls with the with a, anxiety about the economy, anxiety about rising crime, um, anxiety about the right track, wrong track of the direction of the country, um, by any of those measures, people were not very happy and they wanted a, a, a shift by the Biden administration. And they were judging the Biden administration somewhat harshly, but not harsh enough to really hand over the keys to the car to Republicans in a very emphatic way, right? Or a very conclusive way. So um, we have what I think the what the American people voted for, which is you're essentially going to have political gridlock with the the balance of power in the United States operating between essentially the 45 yard lines of American politics. Michael, political gridlock. You agree with that? Yes, I do. I think there's going to be political gridlock. I think President Biden's agenda comes to a screeching halt. I think that we will have to start taking um, one lesson I learned from last night is that we have to start taking the early vote more as a factor into how we are going to start either predicting or um, talking about like the conclusion of these elections, because I was really baffled by reporters over the last two weeks talking about the election as if, um, you know, Democrats were not going to turn out. There was no enthusiasm. This was going to be another 10 or 14 and I just didn't understand it. And I said, are you, are you just looking at the polling? I mean, why why wasn't anybody looking at the actual hard numbers of people who had already voted? Because if you look at all of the voting that had taken place, including the performance by um, the, in the House specials over the summer that outperformed that were the Democrats outperformed Biden. And if you look at you know the Dobbs decision and voter registration, and candidates, Democratic candidates outraising Republican candidates, all of the actual numbers and data just showed that there was only intensity on one side, and it it was never really on the Republican side, I, other than maybe polls, but they were so abstract until you actually saw the voting begin. So I guess that's one of my biggest takeaways, is that 
the public is now the electorate is now voting by mail or in person early more than it ever has before. That, that that's a really interesting takeaway, and and I kind of want to push a little bit more on the split ticket piece because we saw it in New Hampshire, we saw it in Kansas, in Ohio, in Georgia, um, and and Brian Kemp won pretty handily, and we still don't know the outcome of the Senate race, and so. Herschel Walker is a Trump-endorsed candidate. Brian Kemp went head-to-head with Trump. So what what does this mean for how we think about voters making decisions going forward? And I think the early vote does play into that. Well, look, I think the split decisions and the split ticket phenomenon is largely rooted in the fact that you take these these swing areas of each of each one of these states. And it really comes down to the suburbs. And you had candidates that lost because they were essentially toxic in the suburbs. They were toxic with voters that are perfectly fine with crossing over and voting for somebody not in their tribe, Mm -hmm. either a Democrat or Republican, who just talks directly to the issues that matter to them most. And the issues that matter to people the most this time were the economy. Inflation, rising prices, right? A looming recession, um, increases in crime. And then in many of these swing areas where suburbans matter and Republican moderate women matter, the abortion issue was also a driver of their vote and why they found some candidates uh, too far to the extreme. And so the backdrop of the abortion issue did actually have a, have a, make a difference in uh, many of these suburbs, and it made a difference in why you saw this dislocation oftentimes from gu- gubernatorial races and Senate races. Yeah, and Michael, I want to bring it back to you because you mentioned that the Democratic base was a bit more energized than polls gave them credit for. and But I want to ask a question about the base because it seems like these— these these races are being decided on the margins here, not not by the base. The big middle. Yeah, and yeah. so and, and I, I think, feel like both both parties right. talk about base turnout, base turnout, but but what they really need to be spending their time on is the middle. Is that is that kind of what your view is, Michael? I think so. I think I mean, and Democrats won the won independence last night by two points. Um, and that's the third election in a row that they have. So I, I believe that they are targeting independents. But I do think that um, what Dobbs did, uh, and frankly, I think there are two there are two unforeseen events that sort of changed the contours of this midterm uh, from a traditional midterm by historic standards versus like a 1998 or a 2002, and it's external factors and. One of them was Dobbs, because I think what it did was it at least brought both parties' intensity and enthusiasm back to an even playing field. Um, and then I think the reemergence of, of the former president, who just polls terribly with independence, from, from normal polling to last night's exit polls. People, independents just are turned off by the guy and are reminded every time he's a, he is in sent in front of the camera of why they didn't vote for him last time. And there's an immediate addiction to him. And so long as that is still the case, which it, it doesn't seem like it's going away. Um, I think that's a really big problem for, for Republicans um, because of the independents specifically are just turned off by him. 
And these candidates that he crowned um, the entire time that I was, when I left the White House in August, I started paying attention a lot more closely. And one thing I noticed from August on was all of the Senate candidates, the Republicans had consistently higher unfavorable um, likability numbers than their Democratic rivals. And those Democratic candidates all had more popular ratings than President Biden. Well, Um, your your observation is definitely correct because Republicans are expected to have a much narrower than anticipated majority in the House of Representatives. And, you know, control the Senate is still up in the air. Um, so, so Kevin, what what does this mean for a uh, likely future Speaker McCarthy and the Republican agenda? Well, a lot of that depends on how they interpret what happened on Tuesday night. And that's one of the interesting things about uh, internal party politics is Republicans won a political majority. They're going to control the House of Representatives. But a political majority and a governing majority are two very different things. So they may have the numbers to get all the spoils of a majority, right? Which is Speaker McCarthy is going to have a title. He's going to have a much bigger office and they're going to have Republican House members with gavels. And um, they're going to be able to control the agenda to a certain extent, but they do not have the numbers in order to really drive and marshal big national consensus and party unity around big initiatives. So I think, again, going back to my earlier observation, which is we're looking at a lot of gridlock. We're going to see the Congress in Washington operating within these 45-yard line, the 45-yard lines of American politics. And the other interesting factor is there's always a tendency for the most active base voices inside a party to misinterpret uh, political mandate. So we have the majority, and the reason we didn't have a bigger majority, many of these insurgents are going to say, is because we weren't conservative enough. We didn't run hard enough. We didn't drive hard enough on a, on our opposition to the Biden agenda. And so one of the big pressures right now is going to be preventing Republicans from overreaching. And so they're, they're going to want to have take these gavels, and they're going to want to um, have an agenda that's driven by oversight and investigations. When what's really driving the American electorate's psyche right now is concerns about the economy, concerns about kitchen table issues, concern issues that need legislative reforms or comprehensive blueprints on policy. And so the big canyon right now is how prepared the Republicans are to do that when they're going to be driven by a very loud activist faction inside their uh, inside their conference. Do you think that the reality of Trump-supported candidates underperforming gives a Speaker McCarthy an opportunity to sort of focus on these more kitchen table issues and sort of tamp down some of that insurgency? It should. Voice? It should. And, and one of the ways that he may do that is he may let that faction inside his conference touch the stove, burn their fingers and learn the hard way. Um, and it may be one of the, and, but that's, that's not exactly very, um, orderly. Um, uh, that's not an ordinary, that's not an orderly process. Um, that kind of friction inside a party, um, means that it's not going to be, uh, as easy to, um, develop a, a, you know, a cohesive agenda. And if you look at the commitment to America that they outlined, that the House Republicans outlined during the election season, it's pretty vague. And it says things like, you know, we're going to tackle inflation. We're going to, um, you know, conduct uh, accountability and oversight and we're going to do more. We're going to explore more domestic 
production on drilling and things like that. So those are, those are big issues that they, you know, may have some unity on. Um, but there's probably going to be a lot of, of fighting and internal conflict when it comes to things like funding um, our um, allies in Ukraine. Um, and so those flashpoints and flashpoints around other issues where the Republicans want to be much more aggressive in investigating or confronting the Biden administration, um, those will be those will be tough challenges to manage. Thanks. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about the next election on everyone's mind, 2024. Every two weeks, Penta measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations toward the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by Penta, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us at pentagroup.co. Welcome back to our special midterm edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm Andrea Christensen, and I'm here with Kevin Madden and Michael LaRosa, breaking down what we know about Tuesday's election results and what they mean for future elections. So speaking of future elections, Governor Ron DeSantis overperformed. Trump endorsed candidates underperformed. Biden overperformed, but is still unpopular. So what does this tell us about the 2024 race that essentially starts today? Michael, let's start with you. I think that the president is going to view last night whether he should or not. Um, I think they're going, the White House and the president are going to view um, last night as a validation of the of his policies and of his agenda. Uh, in their eyes, Democrats embraced his agenda, even if they didn't embrace him physically. They embraced the things that he is talking about and um, the sort of laundry list of accomplishments uh, domestically that he was able to get through. So he's, I think, it, I think Kevin's right. I think it's, he's going to be emboldened. And um, I think this will make him want to run even more. I think he will end up running ultimately, but I think this only reinforces that he probably will. So I think that's right. Uh, that if you're down at the white house right now, you feel a sense of reprieve and I, um, but I think the mistake here is overreading that what happened last night and thinking that you should be emboldened and that. And I where I disagree with Michael is the idea that um, his agenda was embraced. If you look at any of the exit polls, the president still has very low approval rating. People still feel like the country's on the wrong track and they feel like many of the policies that he's promoting are hurting the country. And on the biggest ones, the economy, inflation, gas prices, uh, crime, um, voters said that they were more likely to support Republicans and thought Republicans had a better plan on that. So there was a bit of a reprieve, but you have to make sure that you recognize that, okay, you got another chance at this. They're not willing to give over the government wholesale uh, control to the Republicans. And so we've got to find a way to revamp our message, revamp our strategy, possibly temper our domestic and international agenda and do a better job of focusing on the big middle of the American electorate, again, in a, in a, at a time where voters essentially said we're divided and we want everybody to operate within the 45-yard lines of American politics. Yeah, exactly. So, so go ahead, Michael. Sorry. No, I was just – I was, I was going to agree with what Kevin said because I think people are feeling real uh, financial pain and um, – I think the exit polls captured 
all of that. And I, one of the lessons I, I, I keep relearning and you, you may or may not agree, but when we talk about pocketbook issues or issues that, that matter, that people can feel, I question whether that matters less than sort of cult of personality in politics generally, because of all those things that Kevin listed based off of the exit polls and, and um, the president's performance and approval rating, people, despite all that pain, they still weren't able in, in some cases to vote for, to, to, to punish him. Um, their, were, their dislike for Republican candidates was stronger than how they feel about paying for gas prices or inflation. So that begs the question, and I don't know the answer, but is is candidate quality actually the biggest driver when you have a binary choice between two people? Um, is politics more personality driven? Is that what is that what are, does it does messaging actually really matter when you have a choice between two people? I think, I, you know, in college, when John Kerry was running against George W. Bush, Ohio had a, one of the worst job um, unemployment rates in the country. And I thought there's no way that the American people would support or Ohio would reelect George W. Bush. But well, people wanted people could relate to him. They did not like John not Kerry. To, not to age anybody here, but while you were in college <laughs> on that campaign, I was actually working on it, Michael. And you know what state <laughs> I was tasked with winning? Ohio. The state of Ohio. So let me tell you, and this is the big, this is a really good example because it sort of offers us a glimpse into how these, um, how, how the issues are debated and how attributes matter, right? And how candidates talk about those and how they understand the problems of, of the average voter and then how they articulate the vision for the future. And in that race, John Kerry was talking about some higher taxes and he was talking about, you know, possibly um, uh, different trade policies. And he was talking about, um, uh, he was also talking about national security in a different way than, than George W. Bush was. So it was a very clear contrast between the candidates. And the candidate that won was the candidate that was more optimistic about the future and was more focused on um, how we could put um, more of, of a, an emphasis back on uh, uh, commerce and economic activity. And so it was a very close race. It only came down to 70,000 votes in that state, but 70,000 votes was the difference between whether or not John Kerry was president. So um, I think that's one of the lessons that Biden has to recognize is that um, he has to have a message that is now, that, 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 that does a better job of talking to the people um, who uh, feel that um, the White House is out of touch on spending, that the White House is out of touch on um, uh, on taxes, that the White House is out of a touch on how it approaches issues like energy exploration, gas prices, and inflation. So um, it was there was like I said, there was no really clear cut message as far as an electoral mandate out of Tuesday's results. But if you're down at the White House, you got to say, okay, we got a reprieve. What do we do to retool our message? And do a better and, job ahead of 2020, 20, uh, ahead of 2024. And that's interesting because I, I think what I've heard from them is that they feel their message, democracy on the ballot, they feel that that message worked. I don't, I'm actually, I don't know if that worked or not. I, the, but the numbers say it did not. The numbers say that it, democracy ref, democracy at stake did not matter with the, the voters who made the difference in this election. But I do think to your point, I mean, Voters are less willing to vote for a bad candidate um, on the margin. 
And I think that that does matter. And so I want to bring it back to 2024 and we're thinking about candidates. I mean, Trump's got a planned uh, rally coming up where everyone's expecting him to announce for 24. Um, apparently, he uh, hearing he wasn't quite happy with last night and he shouldn't be happy with last night. I don't think that changes anything. But Kevin, I mean, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, who wins in a primary? <laughs> well, that's a lot. That's an entire podcast on its own. Well, I just sure. I'm looking um, for an answer. Let me, let me put it this way. <laughs> Donald Trump has a very firm grip on the Republican Party and the Republican Party base activists that shows up in primaries and votes. Um, he has a looser grip than he had on Monday. Uh, and he also has a looser grip than he did in 2020 and then in 2020 and 2016. So the, the that is that is um, there's an opportunity out there for somebody to take uh, Trump on and um, possibly beat him in a primary. It's a very slim opportunity because no one has yet demonstrated that they're willing to confront um, Donald Trump and run the type of campaign that would confuse or fluster Donald Trump in that he's he's always on, Donald Trump is always on offense. He's always framing the debate on his terms and he is relentless in attacking his opponents and relentless in how he activates his, his base voters. So, Don, so Ron DeSantis is 20 point win I think it's close to 20 points, right? I, I forget what the numbers are, but it was looking, it was looking like yeah. a very sizable mm-hmm. win and he was winning and he was winning amongst demographics that don't necessarily, or in the past hadn't necessarily been strong Republican voters. Um, and he has offered a template for national Republicans on how you can run a race and win over crossover votes and dominate in a battleground state. Um, that is increasingly turning red, by the way. It's Florida's turning, looking more and more like South Carolina every every time we have an election. So there's an opportunity there. But the question is, can he run that same race every single day, three times a day for two years against Donald Trump? And hey. that we don't know. T- time will tell. And and Michael, you, you said that you think Biden's going to run again in 2024. Um, I won't put you on the spot and ask if you think he should, but who might be other viable uh, candidates should he choose not to run? Uh, probably Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. Not not that I would support either one of them, but those who are those are two people that I think would certainly get in along with the vice president. And then um, I think you'd have to look at some governors like Gavin Newsom and Jared Paulus, now Gretchen Whitmer, um, I think they're going to, people are going to start talking about those kinds of people. I have no insight into whether they are planning it, but it seems like those are the kind of people that they would, uh, that the kind of elected officials that would want to explore it. But I, I do think Biden's going to run. I, I, I think it's, I think it's very hard to see how Biden doesn't run now. If, if the, if the, if we saw a much different judgment, if we saw the red wave that everybody expected, the pressure would have mounted every single day from today all the way through the, the beginning of the year for for Biden to step aside and let new leadership take over inside the Democratic Party. But with this, the reprieve, I think they, they have to feel emboldened and they are going to march ahead with an announcement probably early in the year because we know Donald Trump is going to announce before the end of the year. And um, 
the Trump effect back in full effect. <laughs> well, it seems like we'll have an interesting two years ahead of us. Kevin, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for listening to this edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. Tune in next week and visit us at pentagroup.co to learn more. Thank you. Thank you.